Welcome, everybody, to the latest Truth and Consequences Zoom chat, and this is a good one. They're all good, but this is especially good. Today, I am joined by Matt Glassman, who is the expert, the the wonderkind when it comes to congressional procedure, and he is going to educate us today on what the hell is happening in the House of Representatives. Matt, welcome. So glad to have you here. Yeah, this is awesome. Thanks for inviting me. And uh, I'm flattered to be given that title, um, but uh, super excited to share what I know, because I know it can be really frustrating watching these things and listening to all this jargon and trying to cut through it and figure out what's actually going on, both on the procedure side and the politics side. So hopefully I can uh, straighten people out, at least on the procedure side, and then we can talk about the politics side, too. Yeah, there's two things going on here, right? There's the procedure of the House, and then there's the politics of this. Let's do the procedure first, so everyone understands this. Yeah. Basically... Nothing, tell me if I'm wrong here, but nothing can happen in the House of Representatives until a speaker is chosen. Is that correct? Well, under current practice and under current House rules, that is correct. Uh, The big thing, big picture to keep in mind is that the House can do whatever it wants. Uh, The Constitution only tells it that you got to get a quorum together to do business. If a fifth of the people want to vote, you got to take a recorded vote and you got to keep a journal, right? Otherwise, the Constitution says you make up the rules, right? So the House is always free as a majority to change its rules. But under current practice, the first thing they do is they get a speaker. Uh, And that's been true throughout American history. And it's kind of hard to picture how they would even operate without a speaker. Um, But they do the speakership vote uh, before the swearing in, before the adoption of their own rules. They're not operating under the normal House rules right now. And so there's no really, I mean, they could change it, but for all intents and purposes, they need to get a speaker. And in previous deadlocks, they've gone weeks and months just sitting on the speakership vote. Uh, in part because what's the alternative? They need a speaker. The Constitution says choose one. They've always been a speaker-led chamber. They need to get a speaker, and that's what's going to happen here. They're not going to do any deal to go bypass the speakership. And here's one thing I find a little strange about this. Um, Some of these members were newly elected, so they are not actually sworn in as members of Congress, and yet they are able to vote on the speaker. Is there any discussion here about whether or not they're actually legally allowed to be participating in this debate? Well, you know, there's sort of academic debates and historical debates, but it's always been this way. Now, you know, you say some of the new members aren't sworn in. None of them are sworn in, right? <laughs> Everyone's true. term expired. That's right. Noon, right? They're all members elect. And it's always been the case that because they do the swearing in after the speakership vote, it's always been the case that member elects vote for speakers. It leads to some weird stuff. People had voted for speaker and then not been seated in Congress because they've been challenged and, and, and because there are, you know, election challenges or qualification challenges. Thanks. And so it's always been the member elects who vote for the speaker, um, then they swear in the speaker, and then the speaker swears in the members. It's causing problems on the Hill right now. Um, you may have seen some of this stuff. Uh, Representative Gallagher was not allowed into a skiff to meet with Joint Chiefs Miley, uh, the chair of the Joint, Joint Chiefs, because he is doesn't have a clearance right now because he's not on the Intel Committee, because the Intel Committee doesn't exist, because they haven't made the rules that create it, and uh, other members are having trouble interacting with the federal government. My view is that that's a little heavy-handed. Uh, the House has chosen to say they're members-elect for the purpose of House rules. But from a separation of powers point of view, I consider the members of Congress in terms of dealing with the executive branch. So it, it, it bothers me that they're not being let see classified information right now. But as far as the House is concerned internally, they can do it once, and they are members-elect now, not members. And that means they don't have all the rights of members inside the House. That's interesting. So, yeah, I was wondering about that because I've, I've seen some of these conversations that there are some national security implications of this. And it seems a little bit over the top as yeah. far as the the, the, the the concerns that have been raised. But I, I guess the question sort of is, I have to ask here, how long can this go on? I mean, don't we need a functioning House of Representatives for Congress to be able to operate? 
Sure. For Congress to be ever, absolutely, right? If we don't have a functioning House, you cannot pass legislation. You just can't do it, right? Uh, the Constitution is very clear on that. House and Senate both have to pass bills to make a law. Um, and also, you can't conduct oversight. Now, I know a lot of people, uh, particularly liberals, are scared of sort of Republicans doing sort of the witch hunt oversight. But Congress also does regular good oversight. The main is helping constituents who are having trouble getting passports from the State Department. Right. That sort of casework is sort of like the unheralded, low-key, non-public oversight of making sure the federal government is running smoothly in the agencies. And that's, that's, that's an unalloyed good that Congress provides to citizens of the United States uh, interacting with the federal government. And that's sort of the lowest level. But, you know, there's also a lot of good oversight. No bills, no oversight. None of that's going to happen until they set up. Does that mean our democracy is falling apart because of this? No. You don't need a legislature to be in session all the time. A lot of you, I'm sure, live in states where the legislature doesn't meet for eight months of the year. Life goes on. There's just a governor running the state. The United States of America operated that way for 120 plus years where Congress was not really in session year round. It's okay. Um, That said, is it optimal? No. (laughs) We want our Congress functioning, particularly in the modern age when there's things we want Congress dealing with, even if in the most minimal sense, it's just being a check on the president, right? If they're not operating, uh, you know, at full capacity, they're not watching over what Biden's doing for better or worse, but uh, for sure. But on the casework point, and that is a very good point, by the way, people sort of forget, especially for House members, a huge part of what they do is casework. You know, you have constituents who have issues with a a federal agency, or it could be any, could be a national issue, and they need help, and they often will turn to whatever Congress to help. Now, can these members actually help them right now on casework? Bacon, you know, from my view, absolutely. Like, they may not be members of the House, as far as the House is concerned, but they were elected. Their term has started. From the point of view of the system and the Constitution, they are the members, they are the representatives. And so, in my view, the agencies should be serving them and interacting with them no different whether they're sworn or unsworn. It's true they haven't taken the Article 6 oath in the Constitution, and that means they can't sort of constitutionally pass bills. But oversight is not sort of like a constitutional process uh, in that sense. And for the executive branch to deny them that, in my mind, is wrong. Now, is it going to happen or not? I don't know. Uh, I assume enough pressure and the agencies can change their tune. This isn't like some court order the agencies not to work with them. Right, um, right. But, uh, you know, and and enough angry citizens. But you know, casework is like a big deal and constituent service is a big deal. Um, and that puts a lot of political pressure on the members too. Because if it is the case that they aren't being allowed to fulfill these constituent service requests, that's going to make a lot more people inside the chamber more antsy more quickly to get this done with. Um, I mean, I was just thinking about this like earlier today. I was like, you know, members are going to go home this weekend. Like, do they get reimbursed for their, their travel? Like, I mean, I know it sounds crazy that, that yeah. if staff goes, I know it's a dumb question to ask, but like at some point yeah. you need to actually have these rules set up. And it is kind yeah. of a crazy situation not to have this taken care of yet. Yeah, um, I mean, and, and, you, and this goes, you know, there's all sorts of things you'll notice that because we don't have house rules aren't happening. One, the committees don't exist. That's just true. And so as I understand it, you know, this is a real technical detail. Committee staffers aren't going to get paid on January 13th because there's no committees. Um, and they don't have an employing authority. Uh, the members' offices exist, and so those people will get paid. There's definitely money appropriated, and there's, there's authorizations. But even when you're watching the coverage of this, if you notice, the C-SPAN coverage has been excellent. It's because yeah. they're unfettered in their use of the cameras. When the House rules go in and the Speaker gets the authority to make sort of uh, Speaker orders, the first thing they do is they restrict what C-SPAN can show. Right now, you're seeing down in the huddles, they got the volume turned all the way up. You can listen to the members. It's great. It's amazing. Uh, and C-SPAN, yeah. yeah, and it's C-SPAN doesn't amazing. let you forget that either. Yeah, let me say for the record, as someone who used to, I used to work on the Hill and like you, you would, it was so frustrating because you would get, you know, just the speaker perspective. Like if I worked on the Senate side, but like you just didn't see anything else really. And now you're seeing like kind of, you know, how that people interact with each other. It's sort of fascinating. You know, I mean, the stuff yesterday about 
uh, or two days ago, I guess it was now, it's hard to remember what day these things happen. AOC talking to Matt G- Gates and talking to, you know, to Paul Gosar and all these folks kind of interacting who you wouldn't expect to ever interact. And it yeah. kind of gives you a sense of like, it's actually a little bit of a positive. It re- you realize that like the partisan divisions are very intense, but yet these people are human beings and they do talk to each other and they do yeah. interact with each other. And, and a lot of them have interpersonal relationships, fewer than in the past. There are some frayed tensions where there's people who literally hate each other. I have a, I have a friend who likes to joke that, during during last Congress, they do you remember when the members of Congress used to pretend to hate each other, um, which is sort of a morbid joke. But I think after January 6th, there definitely was some animosity that led to a level of members literally like hating each other. Yeah, right. Um, and that 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 was a new level. And it's good to see some of it thawing in this situation. And this is a high stakes situation, um, but it has not led to the you know sort of combat ready scenarios of of the 1850s and previous deadlocks thing right we're not gonna see any canings hopefully no, uh, or people days. with guns or knives in the gallery that's that that that's a different level i mean and and part of that is sort of a thing like the stakes here are really high in one sense they're really not high in another sense there's going to be a speaker it's almost certainly going to be a republican who's going to be similar than scalise or mccarthy or McHenry, or whoever gets it like the ultimate outcome here probably doesn't have that much in and of itself uh, difference of who gets the speakership. I think this is a great point, and it's what I've been thinking a lot about. And I, I, met, I, met, I tweeted about this yesterday that we see a lot of stupid things happen over the past sort of six years in American politics, like one dumb thing after another. This feels like the dumbest, and yeah. largely because they're arguing over nothing, nothing, nothing. really nothing. This is nothing. this is like the Seinfeld Congress. It's 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 a fight over nothing, yeah. you know, and. In a lot of ways, it's just kind of posturing. Now, tell me, maybe I'm wrong here. Maybe the, the the rebels have a real beef with McCarthy and others, but it feels to me like this is just political posturing. Yeah, I think a lot of it is that. I mean, I think the Freedom Caucus has always felt this way over the last, you know, 10, 12 years when it was, you know, more the Tea Party after 2010. But the basic orientation of a lot of those members has been, in my view, a complete unseriousness about governance yes. um, and a complete messaging strategy. Uh, and and really just it's funny you think about it in like sort of like a modern internet way they're just there for like the shits and giggles and the lols I, I you know and and that's different you can disagree with republicans on policy but there are serious republicans who want to make policy you disagree with the freedom caucus doesn't even feel like they want that right it's just they're there to gain media attention and it's really hard to negotiate with people who thrive in the media attention of a situation like this right every day yes. this goes on it's just more media hits from matt gates um, and so that's difficult. And that's been, you know, we've had 10 years of that. I, to me, the dumbest moment was always the 2013 shutdown. But this certainly is going to be in that pile um, of, of what are we doing here? And, you know, and they have these rules changes they're asking for. And we, we can talk about those. But I'm still not convinced that that's why they're doing this. Right. Part of this just wants to be their continued flex of like, we're not conservatives. We're not the leadership, the leadership of the bad guys who make compromises and actually try to govern. We are pure conservatives. Don't think of us as them. And if they need to get McCarthy's scalp to prove that this time, maybe they need to get McCarthy's scalp to prove it. And, and that's tough, right? You know, I think this is a great point. It's something I've been thinking a little bit about as well. You know, how much of this is is they posturing, I think, and suggesting they want to just show themselves to be yeah. the, the rebels, the insurgents, right? There's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a benefit to being the guys who are on the outside attacking the establishment. But how much of it is also, um, I guess, hey, Kevin McCarthy? Or, I mean, there's a, there's a conflation of the two. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think it is a conflation too. Like, I mean, they hated Boehner, 
right? They hated Boehner. Ryan. And part of that is that, that Boehner and Ryan and McCarthy degree come out of a, a different sort of world of conservatism. They come out of much more sort of the business oriented conservatism that wants to roll back sort of the welfare state and streamline business and deregulate and doesn't really care about the social issues and honestly is opposed to them on things like immigration, right? And they come out of a little bit more of a populist vein. Um, but the, their anti-establishment attitudes mean that anyone who compromises with anyone at the top is suspect and not right. true. But you have to compromise in our system. It's built on that. You have to work with the Senate. You have to work with the president. You have to work with the Democrats. And so the, the very you know, essence of governing makes them hate you, right? And yes. then and yes. the thing is, they end up with worse policies than they would get because they refuse to go along. You know, Boehner and Ryan dealt with this for a decade in the appropriations bills. They won't vote for them. And so what do they got to do? They got to go deal with the Democrats all of a sudden. Exactly. Now the policy moves to the left, which means they can kick and scream and blame you more. Right. Um, now, Boehner's genius, in my view, was that Boehner was willing to be their whipping boy. And he was willing to say, OK, assholes, right? Fine. You can yell at me all you want. I'm cutting the deals. I don't know if McCarthy has that in him. And that's what worries me, is that McCarthy, instead of cutting the deals and sticking his middle finger up at them and say, come at me, bro, is just going to instead kowtow to everything they want. He's going to be too scared of them. Um, so this... Yeah, this gets to the question of McCarthy. So I, I have sort of been thinking a little bit about whether or not my whole take of McCarthy is wrong. And the sense that, I shouldn't say wrong, but maybe more nuanced, that, that maybe he's, he's kind of not to blame for this in the sense that no, to your point that you just made, no speaker, no one who is in the leadership could pacify this group because by their very nature, they have to be against the leadership. So in a sense, I kind of feel like there's nothing he could have done. Yeah. And uh, now I should say that maybe between November and now, I think the problem is that he is not seen as a serious person and not as seen as a trustworthy person. And so that kind of builds up to the point where I think when you got the midterm result, which wasn't great for Republicans, they won the House, but not what they expected, that there was just a lot of ill will and animosity and distrust that it was impossible to bridge at that point. But there is some part of it that feels like maybe that's just the way this was going to always be because of the nature of these establishment complaints, these anti-establishment complaints. I think you have an institutional feature here and a personnel feature here. The institutional feature here is that their their margin is so narrow. If they had won 240 seats, then the leadership would have just said, pound sand to the Freedom Caucus. We're doing what we're doing. And if you want to vote against us, fine. It's a nice show vote for you and your media clowns, but we're moving on. They can't do that with 222. They just can't. They need the votes. Um, and so that's the institutional side. The, the the personnel side is that we have been sort of like, this is going to sound weird to say, but we've been blessed over the last decade with really strong legislative leader, leaders. Like Pelosi is one of the best ever. Boehner is really good at it, right? And now you're going to go back to sort of a mediocre leadership, maybe. We don't know on the Dem side, but I know on the Republican side, this is mediocre leadership. And they're just going to have that much of a tougher time, right? Because not only are they not good at the bargaining, they're not good at the transaction politics. I don't even know if McCarthy can deliver his coalition. I mean, that's the big he can't, obviously. He I mean, th- that's the sort of I mean, I, that's the sort of element in the room here is like he, he can personally want to give the Freedom Caucus the farm in order to get the speakership. But I don't know if he can make his 200 go along with it. Right. He's talking about giving away subcommittee chairmanships on appropriations and stacking the rules committee with these guys. Like if I'm if I'm Tom Cole, who has the subcommittee chairmanship on appropriations that he's trying to give away and is also the chair of rules who would be stuffing these idiots on. Right. Like why, why would Cole go for this deal? Right. Yeah. Why would Kate Granger, the head of appropriations, go for this deal when she's got. 40 members on a probe, so we're going to be livid that Andy Harris has jumped the line here to be sort of a <laughs> subcommittee chair. I mean, and and so like 
would I trust Pelosi if she needed that deal to make sure it got done? Yes. Would I trust Boehner? Probably. Do I trust McCarthy? No, I don't. Yeah. That's the thing. That's, I think, the, the biggest issue. And and I will say this. You made a, a point a second ago that, that perhaps you just should told the Freedom Caucus to stick it. Like, I'm not giving you anything. But my, my sense is also is that a lot of ill will built up. But then once it became clear that McCarthy was willing to give up everything that he said he wouldn't give up to get their votes, it, sort of the deal was done at that point. Because at that point, you just felt like, well, you can just keep pushing him and pushing him and pushing him. And he's going to keep giving in to you. I mean, I think he projected weakness because he was so desperate for the job. And I think that seems to be his problem and why I, I mean, I've been of the view all along that he would eventually become speaker because there was no other alternative. I I don't really think that's true anymore. I I don't see how it happens. And I think part of it's because there's no goal goal poster. It keeps being moved. This is a, this is a problem. Like now, look, I mean, there's a big division here in whether you think the freedom caucus is bargaining, or if you think they're just playing an attrition game to wait until his coalition cracks and they get the scalp. And we, we don't know the answer to that. And so you have to think about it both ways. On the bargaining side, I agree McCarthy has not done great. These people are impossible to deal with. But wow. the, the, the goalpost thing is important. And I, I think about Dan Roskinkowski, who was Ways and Means here in the House, an old school machine pal from Chicago in the 70s, 80s, early 90s. And he took one look at how the Clintons were negotiating out health care in 93. And he said, these people are idiots. When you yeah. give someone, when you give something to someone, the first thing you do is make them have a press conference lauding your package up yes. and down the line yes. and tying yes. them to it. And and that's what exactly what McCarthy's done. You're going to give them something. Go make them have a press conference. Talk about how they want you to be speaker now and how great it is, right? Instead of sort of like just leaking it out that you're giving them everything they want and just letting them walk away and laugh and move the goalposts again. And I, I yeah, couldn't agree more. No, no. I wanted to interject the point of like a couple of days ago, he said, we're going to move the vacate, the motion to vacate, which was basically allows anyone to bring up, um, you know, a vote, to, a no confidence vote, basically, yeah. in the speaker to five yeah. votes. Something he said he would not do. He yeah. does that. And he doesn't get any um, guarantee from these folks they're going to vote for him. None. That None. is the worst form of negotiating. Yeah, it's just negotiating against yourself. It's like sitting at the car dealership and, and, and raising your price every two minutes without, without them talking. I, 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 I should say on the motion to vacate in particular, I, I, there's been so much made of that. And to me, that is a nothing burger. Um, the motion to vacate on a single person's unilateral move on the floor has existed for 100 years. It's never been, you know, really used. And I don't understand why everyone seems fixated on it. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. You, yeah. You're, you, so you're surprised. But I think, is it because they think they'll just keep bringing it up? Well, maybe. Terrible? But like the thing is, if, if you want to, I mean, so they bring it up, right? This, it's no different than the unilateral ability to put an impeachment resolution on the floor, which is also true. And Representative Green did that a couple of times during Trump's presidency, right? You just go down there and put an impeachment. There's nothing they're going to stop you. It's one of the few things members can unilaterally do. This is the same thing. What do you do? Well, you immediately move to table it. You take the vote and you table the thing and it's gone. There's no debate or anything. Um, the, the, the bigger point is if you have the balance of power, like the Freedom Caucus does, and you want the speaker out of there, you can make it happen very easily. You can just vote against his agenda on sort of the rules that come to the floor and any bills that come to the floor. And he will cry mercy and uncle within a week because there's, you can't operate the floor if you don't have a majority. And so you don't need some special tool if you're going to deny someone a majority to do it. You just stop supporting them, right? And that, that's sort of the flip side of McCarthy's problem now. It's like people have all these ideas about clever ways to get the speakership. Or we'll, we'll get the Dems to help us. Or we'll have the Dems go hide out in the hall so they're not present. It doesn't matter because say you do get the cabal. 45 minutes later, we got to set the rules. Now you're back to the same problem of needing to build a majority. You need a stable majority of one sort or another. It doesn't have to be the partisan majority, but you need a stable procedural majority. 
You can build that with the Democrats in theory, but it has to be stable for, you know, at least minimally stable for two years. If they don't get a settlement in the GOP where there's 218 Republicans who can consistently vote together in procedures, they're going to just repeat this speakership vote nonsense for two years. Listen, I, I, I totally agree with you. I actually was going to write this actually today, but I, I this is a point that I can't get. It makes me a little bit crazy. People say, well, we have a coalition where some moderate Republicans support our Democrats. All right, let's say you get that by like what? How about maybe five? It's like five Republicans to go along with that. Yeah. And they pretty much, everybody has to be there all the time to deal with these motion to vacates, right? Because basically, if some people are sick, people are not around, whatever it may be, you could get enough votes to actually topple the speaker is. Like it's a, it's complete and, instability. And forget the motion to vacate. How about just the first time you try to build, bring a bill to the floor? Right? Absolutely. How about two hours after the speakership vote when we try to bring a rules package to the floor? Because that same coalition is going to have to hold together to pass the rules. And they're going to have to hold together to decide what to put on the agenda. And they're going to have to hold together on the appropriations bills. I, you just need a procedural coalition that basically consents to let the leadership run it the way they, they want to as long as they're doing what the caucus wants. And it doesn't have to be the partisan majority. It doesn't have to be. But that's the easy one if you can get a settlement. But any sort of, there's no like, Here's one simple trick for Kevin McCarthy to get the speakership gavel. Like it doesn't matter because the speakership only exists to the degree that you have a majority backing you going forward. That's a great point, by the way. And that gets to, I want to get some of the questions again, but I want to just pick up on this point. I wrote this piece yesterday um, uh, from MSNBC basically saying that no matter what happens, that McCarthy's basically lost. Even if he wins, he can't govern this institution, right? Because he's got a, he, he doesn't have the trust of his members. He clearly can't lead them. He can't get them to vote for him. He's been on now 12 ballots now. He still hasn't won. Um, it, it just seems as though this is a, a product, this situation is going to lead to just complete dysfunction for the next two years because McCarthy cannot lead yeah. his coalition. And here's the thing. I don't think anybody else can. People talk about Steve Scalise yeah. or some compromise choice. I don't buy that either. There is nobody out there that I can see who can lead this Republican caucus. Yeah, I think that's am I, right. Am I wrong? I, I, I think that's generally right that you're headed for a, a, a relatively dysfunctional house. I, and, and I think that sort of part of it is that a lot of their sort of hopeful sort of conservative agenda is going to fall apart in them. I don't see them having the votes to impeach cabinet officials. Right. These are the majorities. I don't see them having the votes to set up a select committee to investigate the select committee on January 6th. All that stuff is going to be pushed into the committee system where they don't need majorities to do it. But the big question is, like, can they pass an appropriations bill? Right. And and that's not a problem when push comes to shove to get a bill, because the Boehner method is really easy. You pass the stupid conservative bill that, you know, has no chance. You send it to the Senate. They throw it in the garbage can. They do a compromise in the Senate. They send it back to you. And then you put yourself on the line to build a coalition that has 120 Dems and 100 Republicans and half your right. caucus votes against it and they hate you, right? Can McCarthy do that? I don't know, man. I mean, it really it really pulls the the, the knot tight around your neck to do that, but that's what Boehner did because you have to do it. And well, uh, it, yeah, go, go ahead, ahead Yeah, go ahead. Keep going, keep going. Oh, now you're, okay. Now I'll go then, fine. Yeah. You're drinking yeah. now, so I'll go. But I, I want to talk about a comment that I just got because I think it relates to this question. I want to be of the debt limit. Martha yeah. asks, it's a Friday situation because previous multiple speaker ballot efforts led to we, we saw them when the breakdown of the country of civil war and the 20s breakdown that led to prohibition, the strong conservatism, Calvin Coolidge and the Great Depression. So this congressional stalemate, she argues, may mean that our near future is likely to be very disastrous. Yeah, I only see that in one regard, the debt limit. Yeah, I don't see how you get a clean debt limit through this House of Representatives. And that's what scares me the most. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I see how you do it. 
The question is, can you do it? Because the method to do it is for Kevin McCarthy or whoever the leader, the leader is, is to put a bill on the floor that a significant, if not vast majority of his own conference votes against. Um, and that that is sort of like the essence of sort of statesmanship almost, right? It's like right. the Democrats will vote for the debt limit increase. There are a handful of Republicans who will do it too. There, there are 218 people in the House who will vote for debt limit increase if the leader of the Republican Party is willing to buck their caucus and put it on the floor, right? But is he? Yeah. Is, is and that, that, that's the question right there. And and what sort of pressure can be brought to bear on that? And And sort of the kind of pressure you can bring to bear on that, you know, you hope is not only sort of just like, pressures of conscience, right? Like you're writing something for the history books here, but also sort of just political pressure, right? Can it be painful enough outside the chamber for the party? Because I, you know, one thing with the Freedom Caucus that's so deadly is they don't give a shit about the Republican Party, right? But people, really like, McCarthy, people like McCarthy do, right? And so you, you hope that the thing that can pressure them is sort of weighing like, okay, this is going to put me out the plank over the ocean on my speakership, but at least I'm not going to be taking the party down into the garbage can with me by defaulting on a debt, right? Um, or, you know, setting up for that sort of thing. I, I think in some ways uh, the debt limit might be the one that is enough of a third rail where McCarthy is just going to say, like, look, there are adults in this room. I'm one. The Dems are one. How many do I have you coming with me? Right. And he'll just do it. The shutdown. I think the government's going to shut down next next October 1st. I just think McCarthy is going to need to do that politically to maintain. Oh, I agree 100 percent. I agree 100 percent. But but let me ask you this. I mean, and this is maybe a little too political of a question, but let's say that. I don't know, 20 Republicans, 10 Republicans vote to extend the debt limit. Don't all of them then face the situation of being primary for doing so? Uh, I, I mean, some of them may not care. Some of them may be in seats where this may benefit them, like the new members from New York or from some from California who are in, who are in plus, you know, Biden seats. Yeah. But I just think you know, it's you're asking a lot of these Republican members to basically go against the orthodoxy of the party and support yeah. something like this. And and I'm not saying it's not possible, but I, let's just say that McCarthy brings a clean debt limit bill to the floor. I, I He's going to get an overwhelming number of Democratic votes and I would imagine a handful of Republican votes. And that just so, makes it even weaker. Yeah. Me. So here's here's one thing to think about that might be a little bit of an optimistic take on this, uh, but I think is important to think about in terms of legislative voting. Um, there's a ton of people in Congress at all times who are in what we call the vote no, hope yes caucus, where they don't want to vote for something, but they want it to happen. Right. right. And and that happens. All, I mean, that was everybody in both parties in the debt limit for the longest time. Right? Absolutely. Same thing on the TARP bill. Heck, it was McCarthy on the appropriations album that was last month. He was railing against that. But the last thing he wanted was to be dealing with that next week. Right. Um, and so that gives me hope because. You know, when you see 100 or 120 Republicans vote against the debt limit at times, most of them are making the decision after they know the votes are there. There's 200 votes there, and now I'm sitting on the side. So what should I do? At that point, it's a cheap vote. If I vote no, it's okay. The country doesn't fall apart. What's going to happen when you are worried you're actually not going to get to 218? There's going to be a lot of people who will begrudgingly vote yes to get you there. But once right. you get there, it'll probably pass very marginally because no one else wants to touch this. Right. And like, you know, the debt limit has become this Republican thing. But for a long time, Democrats didn't want to vote for the debt limit either. No one likes this. It's a crap vote to take in Congress because you get demagogued on it no matter what. I believe um, Obama voted against it when he was a senator yeah. from Illinois. I mean, it used to be the thing where it was the burden of the majority party to raise the debt limit. And the minority party would just vote no. And everyone sort of understood that they're, they're going to vote no and they're going to ding you for raising the debt limit. I, I do blame the Democrats for one thing here. I would have made a priority after the election to eliminate the debt limit. 
it's it's not necessary in any sort of functional policy way. There's other ways to make sure Treasury doesn't start, you know, running up debt on its own. Uh, and it serves no purpose. We've already spent the money. Um, from a budget and appropriations point of view, it's really 95% of fig leaf. And I think the Dems should have just eliminated it, taken the hit in the lame duck and moved on. Could they um, have? I don't know. They could have gotten it to the Senate, though. I don't know if Manchin would have gone along with it. Yeah. I mean, it's possible, right? it's entirely possible and, and they'll come up with every reason in the sun why they, why they shouldn't have done it or couldn't have done it then. But I, I do think they should have tried at least maybe they did that. We don't know about I haven't seen a lot of reporting on it, but, but you know, the debt limit is the debt limit is just, you know, just playing with fire. Um, and you know, I, you know, one thing that the Republicans have learned is that shutdowns are bad politically, but they're not the end of the world. Right. And, and I, I don't want them to start thinking that's also true of the debt limit. Um, well, do Democrats, do they think, I mean, I guess the question about what's the Democratic strategy here, um, you know, I want, I was sort of wondering the debt limit conversation, whether they saw some benefit to having another debt limit showdown, that it just exposed the Republican extremism. Seems like a bad place to play chicken. Yeah, uh, but, other ways you can expose extremism, but maybe that's what they were thinking. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't doubt that. It's certainly a choice every party can make. Do you want a policy or do you want an issue? And and a lot of times they want an issue. And, and, you know, we have a whole new world opening up in the coming year, too. Right. Because all of a sudden Congress is going to recede and the presidential candidates are going to take center stage. And so and so so th- things are things are changing. And, and I just I, you know, I see the Freedom Caucus like literally in their negotiations demanding that McCarthy does not go with a debt limit increase bill and put it on the floor. So, like, I mean, it's like, what do you what do you do, man? It's like if you can't put a clean debt limit increase on the floor, it's like how much are the Democrats willing to sort of play the role of of sort of the northerners in the 1850s and keep giving goodies to the southerners that to keep them from seceding right on these false threats like I, it's not that they won't vote for a debt limit increase they will they just want to cut everything under the sun in exchange for it right it right. really is a hostage situation i i don't think there's anyone who's like against the debt limit uh per se um or increasing it they just they just want to use it to extract every benefit under the sun by by scaring people that they're crazy enough to vote against to vote against it and then in some ways they've kind of proven they are so you don't buy this this notion because I've seen this uh, floated a few times. I don't really. Well, I shouldn't say my views. I, I've seen this idea floated that Democrats can make a deal with McCarthy, in which McCarthy agrees to bring a, a clean debt limit um, bill to the floor in return for them, you know, sitting out a vote so that he can become speaker. Do you see that happening? It seems to me that it would completely um, weaken McCarthy if he were to, yeah. to win the Democratic I, I, votes. I am skeptical of any theory of the McCarthy speakership right now that relies on the Democrats taking action to help him. And I'm skeptical for two reasons. One is that I don't see the political incentives for the Democrats to do it right now. I mean, you can talk about these sort of secret or public deals about the debt limit, but like right now, this week, they're loving this, right? Like there's no short-term incentive for the Democrats to do this. They're watching the other party sort of like self-immolate on the floor of the House. Right. Like it's perfect, right? Um, but secondly, I, I think it's a very fragile coalition. McCarthy has to hold together to do that. And, and McCarthy's problem sort of, I think, procedurally. And, you know, one thing is that we're not used to these situations where we're building coalitions in a public floor. And that's largely because the one place that used to happen in America all the time was the party nominating conventions for the presidency before the primary system, where you had this willing and dealing. And the typical person who paid attention to politics was used to this idea that there might be a floor coalition that morphs. But one truism of that tended to be if you were sort of like a candidate that wasn't getting over the top and wasn't getting there as soon as you started to crumble you were kind of out like you're not going to crumble and come back um and mccarthy's problem is you start talking to the dems and you start negotiating this stuff you might crack 
And if 10 people in the McCarthy coalition are just like, we're done, and they nominate Scalise or vote for Scalise on the floor, the whole thing could flood out on him, right? He really needs to hold all 201 of those people together. Um, And so I don't see them working with the Dems anytime soon. But again, that goes back to the bigger point, which is you need a stable, forward-going coalition. And if you use the Democrats to get it, well, like you found a way to get the gavel and stand up at the front of the room, but you don't have a majority backing you. I think this is the point I keep coming back to that, and I couldn't agree with you more, that that we are debate, we're spending less time talking about the speakership and it'll get resolved eventually. Who knows when? But these problems are not going away. This is a preview. Yeah. I, I said yesterday, it wasn't, this wasn't the amuse bouche of the, <laughs> of the, uh, the shit show we're going to be seeing from Congress in the next two years. So let's just get down to it because I'm sure everyone has this question. And again, please, if you have any other questions, please put them in the chat. But this is the one that I've been thinking about. I want to ask you, yeah. what's going to happen? How do you see this playing out? Do you think McCarthy gets speakership? And if not, who do you think is the most likely person to end up being speaker? Yeah, I, I, so maybe he can cut a deal that sells the farm to the Freedom Caucus that his coalition will back. But that's got to come soon. I mean, soon. Like, it, I, it sounds like they're going to give him the weekend to try and make that deal. But if he doesn't get that deal... By Monday, like I feel like his coalition is going to get restless and someone's going to crack and decide that they got to look somewhere else. And they try and convince him to step back or maybe they'll just vote for someone else on the floor and go. I think Scalise is the next obvious choice. I think one big thing looming here is does the next candidate have to go with this sort of level of deal McCarthy was encouraging? Because like if you can't sell this deal, right, like does Scalise step in and now have to give seats on the rules committee and subcommittees away and like all this nonsense with that lamp? My thinking is that if McCarthy steps back, Scalise has a chance because the scalp will be worth something to the Freedom Caucus. So Scalise plus fewer rule changes than they had been demanding McCarthy might get there. It might have been a, you know, you might have built enough personal animosity towards McCarthy that that'll work. If Scalise doesn't make it, either because the Freedom Caucus is in the same spot or because the McCarthy folks, some of them are just spiteful and think Scalise's fingerprints were on this or something, which I don't think is true. I think Scalise was more than happy as majority leader. Um, then it's chaos. And my dark horse would be McHenry. That's that's the dark horse I've been hearing is Patrick McHenry from North Carolina. Seems to have a good good relations on both sides. I mean, my thing on Scalise is that I have to think that some of these Northeastern Republicans do not want a guy who's been described himself, described himself as David Duke without the baggage. So I'm a little skeptical about Scalise. Eddie's in the leadership. I just yeah. think, look, if you get McCarthy's scalp, then maybe you say, okay, then we can accept Scalise. But I'm skeptical on the Scalise thing. And, I, and as for Elise Stefanik, I don't think anyone trusts her. So I don't really see that as a logical alternative either. Yeah, I, the, the value of McHenry is that he's been in the leadership a long time, but he obviously wasn't ambitious for it because he walked away from it. I mean, he went to this Congress to run the Financial Services Committee, basically with the outgoing quote, like, who the hell would want to run this circus? I mean, so so he's about, like, Scalise is about, I mean, excuse me, McHenry is about as sort of like white knight as you can imagine, because he didn't want any part of this, right? So he's right. not sort of intriguing for this or anything like that. And he's well-liked in the caucus and, and um, you know, probably has reasonable skills for this. One problem with once you get past McCarthy and Scalise is no one has leadership staff really beyond them. So you're talking about staffing up the entire oh, leadership. God, that's a good point. I thought about that. I'm starting the speakership fresh. You're going to be behind the eight ball for a while. Um, but, you know, like, I, you know, I don't know. People are going to come out. I mean, how many people woke up this morning, looked in the mirror and said, there's the next speaker of the house, right? Like a, a lot. A lot. A lot. <laughs> There's a lot of people sitting in that chamber right now going, you know, if the cards just fall exactly right, 
I may be on the, I may be holding banging that gavel next week. Yeah, you used to say like every politician woke up, looked in the mirror, and thought they could be president. Uh, they look at the pres- next president of the United States, and now yeah. it's the next speaker right. of the house. It's over on the north side of the Capitol where they all think they can be president. That's right. That's right. Where the, se- the senators all think that. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I, I, I still think McCarthy plus Scalise is a lot. You know, this is sort of the thing that you can't capture as like a political scientist or these sort of you know institutional analysis. It's just like. The air goes out of this stuff sometimes and people just tire of it. And if McCarthy falls, you may just have 218 who are just exhausted and just want someone to be done. And, and Scalise just fits that bill and it comes together really swiftly. I could totally see that. Sometimes you can just feel it when you're in these rooms that just like people are just ready to accept somebody, anybody to be done. And that, I mean, Scalise has a nice biography for this too, right? I mean, it, it sounds sort of morbid, but like the shooting at the baseball park oh. gives, him, gives him a biography that makes him sort of like, Definitely sort of a beloved figure in the party. And God bless him. Like, I feel awful that Scalise was shot. Um, but that is like such a weird leg up that, you know, he does have that story going for him. But I'm not kidding. I was talking to somebody about this a couple of days ago, and I said, the, and he joked to me, he said, the best thing going for Scalise is he got shot by a liberal. And I actually, I, I don't mean to, to make fun of it, yeah. but I'm actually kind of serious. In this yeah. caucus, that actually counts for something, I think. And I mean, like, it, right. And, and, but it's more like, it's more like Scalise gets this cred, this cred where no one is going to sit there and absolutely slam the guy in public. It's sort of like he's not a war hero, but it's kind of like he was on PT-109 in some small way, right? Like you don't bash yeah. Scalise over the head because look what happened to the poor guy, right? Right. Um, so uh, just to point out that McCarthy has lost, appears to have lost 12th ballot. We have eight flips so far, as Carl points out. Yep. Um, Rena asked a question. I just want to get on this really quickly probably before the call started. What was the point of Trump being nominated yesterday? Is something like impossible? And the answer is no. And I believe the the first question is it was a troll. Uh, correct? Just Gates, right? I mean, Gates. And, and 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 Gates Gates is one of these people who transparently does not take his job seriously. Um, and and you know, a lot of politicians may not be as serious as you want them to be about legislating, but a lot of them at least pretend they are. Um, and Gates, you know, he goes up and he nominates. Trump or he votes for, you know, he, he votes for Trump or speaker. He just sits down and laughs and, and, and people can do what they want. Right. And it, it doesn't matter if Gates votes for Trump or me or you or John Boehner or whoever. Right. Um, but it, it is sort of very symbolic of sort of the basic non-seriousness that some of the rebels in the Republican party are bringing to this whole event. Let me ask you one other question about one other possibility. I raised a few different scenarios a couple of days ago. things how this might play out. One thought I had was that d- does McCarthy at some point, if you can't get a deal, say, let's go with the plurality of the of the uh, of the um, ca- entire House, yeah. which would if that were to happen today on this vote, Jeffries would become speaker right. as a way to sort of threaten the the rebels by saying, if you don't vote for me, you know, you could get Kim Jeffries as speaker. My sense of it is they really wouldn't care if it was Kim Jeffries. I mean, they, I mean, some of them would care, but they also probably see it as like, well, that's just we oppose McCarthy, we oppose everyone. What's the difference? Yeah. So the plurality rule, uh, which the House is more than welcome to install if they can get a majority for it, all would be with someone grabbing recognition, you know, as this, you know, as the clerk is about to announce the next ballot, you stand at the committee desk and put your hand up um, and they'd say, what purposes, you know, the gentlewoman rise. And you would say, I have a resolution here that I want entered. And your resolution could just say that it could reset the rules that on on the next ballot, whoever has the most votes will win. It's totally reasonable. It's how they broke the deadlock in 1849. It's how they broke the deadlock in 1856. Um, uh, that resolution has to pass by majority. Okay. 
And so the rebels can vote against that resolution. And then the only way to pass it is to get Dems to vote for it. And at that point, you're at the game where McCarthy now is leaning on the Dems. And at that point, the rebels can go, look, he's a traitor. He's a Democrat. And that may bring down some of his support. So it's very dangerous to even try to change the change the rules right now to the plurality rule, because it, it looks like, you know, you're either looking to be able to win without a majority, right. which you are. Right. Or you need to pass that resolution by majority. So you're going to need the Dems help. Um, and that's not, I think, where they're at. Um, there's other ways you can change the rules. But again, it all comes back to the same thing. You can change the rules, but you need a majority to do it. And if you're seen as getting the Dems help to do it, then you're in that game where, oh, he got the Dems help. How does that help you in the instant? How does that help you going forward? It probably doesn't help you in either. Uh, let me, uh, yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. I mean, I, I, it just strikes me as a, a blackmail effort that may, it's really an effort to pressure, not to blackmail, to pressure the rebels. I'm not sure it would work. And again, it also end, it could end up weakening McCarthy. It looks like he's getting in through Democratic support. Yeah. I think the worst thing for McCarthy crazy to say this is that is to look like he wins with democratic support because he's already incredibly bit neutered he'd be even more neutered i'm not sure how that actually would work but but if mccarthy goes to the democrats and starts even bargaining over the stuff i think there's a fair chance he loses another dozen people immediately off his off his right flank um and so I, i i really think that mccarthy doesn't want to hear it but the way out of this is to get to a new candidate and like Kevin McCarthy, like I, the most common thing you hear on the Hill when you talk to Republican staffers is no one knows what McCarthy wants, except that he wants to be speaker. Right. Like you yes. hear that all the time. Like, yes. Literally everybody says that. It's like it's like a cliche at this point. And and that, you know, the, the one thing I think McCarthy has going for them is everybody knows that and knows that he'll give up more than anything. That's more right. Than anybody. He'll give up the most to get this. And so I. That's the one thing he's going for them is that maybe you can extract everything under the sun. Like I never thought I'd see the day where someone running for speaker would say, I'll turn over the balance of power on the rules committee. Like forget the motion to vacate. That's chump change compared to saying, oh, Freedom Caucus, you're going to be able to block the floor agenda at the rules committee as long as you and the Democrats don't want to do something. Like, I, I mean, I, that's not worth having the speakership in my mind at that point, right? You're back to the 50s where they can't get the civil rights bills on the floor, even though the leadership wants to put them there. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't think it got, it got enough coverage about just what a a concession that was on the yeah. rules because you're basically like as you said the rules is kind of how the house functions right the rules committee yeah it's what allows you to bring things to the floor to vote on and if yeah. you're basically giving the freedom caucus which is you know at this point forget the help the eyes of caucus just the rebels right if you're giving them two seats on the rules committee with the democratic support they can block pretty much anything they want to block and so they're talking talking about wanting three seats or four seats i mean it's like it's crazy what seriously yeah Yeah. i mean it's like the idea that the the idea that the leadership wouldn't have complete and total control over the rules committee goes against the entire history of the house in the last 60 years right Um, and and the last time they didn't have control of the rules committee was when when rayburn was there and and the southerners had a working majority on the rules committee when combined with some of the, uh, the conservative republicans um and and that was a nightmare right? You couldn't get the civil rights bills out of the rules committee. Um, and, and it took them years to break it. Uh, and, 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 you know, and they did though. And, and now, you know, the typical rules committee is nine, four and nine, five in favor of the majority handpicked by the speaker closest allies. So the leadership can put the bills on the floor that they want. Maybe those bills pass, maybe they don't, but the leadership can get what they want on the floor. Right. To take that away is to hand away sort of probably the key, the key power of the speakership, which is agenda control on the house floor. But I think it makes your point about McCarthy that he doesn't have a policy agenda. 
He doesn't have, there's nothing he wants to accomplish. And frankly, he couldn't anyway because of the Senate, right? right? But he doesn't, what he wants is is speaker. And, and, and it, weirdly, he wants the title, not the job. <laughs> it does feel that way. It does feel like, and you know, in some ways, sometimes I feel bad for, I mean, I don't ever really feel bad for McCarthy, but sometimes I feel like, what McCarthy wants is that like he told his mom or something, he'd be speaker one day and he just wants to achieve that. Right. It doesn't seem like he wants to wield the power of the government to any end that he personally cares about. And, 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 and maybe other politicians are more sort of better at, at pretending they want to wield power for certain ends and they don't either, but you can't see it because on the, and on the Senate side, you have the example of someone else who doesn't have super strong policy and beliefs and that's McConnell. Right. But also gets the leadership and sort of wields it in a way to to move forward with a caucus. And you just don't feel like McCarthy has any sort of capacity to do that or desire. But I think it also speaks something bigger. And I want to get a point. Someone raised in the chat in a second. But, you know, you've got someone in McConnell who doesn't really have a policy agenda either, except judges, which really is about, let's be honest, um, pacifying conservatives and continuing to hold power in the Senate. I mean, I've always made this argument that. McCall cares about judges insofar as it allows him to ensure to remain leader and Republicans to remain in charge in the Senate. And you have a House leader, McCarthy, who cares about nothing. That you really have a Republican leadership that just doesn't give a shit about governing the country. Like that just have no major pol- I mean, look, Paul Ryan is not somebody that I like. He's not somebody who I agree with on anything. But he had an agenda, right? He wanted to destroy. <laughs> the welfare state. That was his policy agenda. That's what he wanted to accomplish. He wanted to cut to erase, sorry, cut taxes on rich people and destroy social welfare programs. I don't agree with that, but that's what he wanted to do. There's nothing like that now. There's no, there's no sense among the people who are in charge. This is also, by the way, of the rebels. None of them have a policy agenda. Yeah. And I think this is the thing about what, where we are now in American governance, that we have a party that is just does not have any interest in governing whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, in, in some ways, like, I, I, I agree. Uh, I, I agree with what, what you're saying. I do think that, you know, legislative leadership doesn't select for huge ideas people all the time. Right? That's true. Like, I, being a good legislative leader is about sort of managing coalitions and factions that have their own ideas, right? And Rayburn being the best example of this, right? Like Rayburn probably had positions on things, but he was more in the mold of, I have all these people who believe different things. I got segregationists, I got civil rights people, I got people who are, you know, for and against labor, and I got people who are for against, you know, different things. I'm going to manage those in a way that we can move forward as a group because we all believe in some things, right? And so legislative leadership isn't necessarily about ideas. And sometimes it's bad when you're into ideas, like Gingrich, right? Like Gingrich was you know, the self-proclaimed ideas guy who didn't know how to lead, a, you know, a group of people. Um, that said, like, we're in a particularly stark spot now. Uh, and again, this goes back to my belief that we have been lucky to have people like Boehner and Pelosi who were good at the legislative leadership side, you know, separate from any belief state about policy or the coalition they were leading, were good at that sort of like herding people together and, 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 and playing those hands. And McCarthy just doesn't have it. Um, and so, you know, do I wish our legislative leaders were more sort of policy people were visionary um in some ways like ryan was a bad fit for a legislative leader because he actually cared about things right um and and he probably would have been happier and probably a better fit for what he wanted to accomplish hanging out at ways and means committee the rest of his career right there's a reason like he didn't want to do the speakership because he's good at it right um and so so it's it's always been difficult i think the bigger problem is that there's a general large faction in the republican party that isn't that interested in governing um and 
you know, we've sort of designed the hill. Both parties have done this, by the way, I, to a certain degree. We've designed the job on the hill to chase policy people out of Washington. Um, the job is so tedious now to be a member of Congress. Uh, and you spend so much time being told by the party to go raise money. Don't go to committee hearings. Don't work on that. The leadership will take care of the policy. You don't have to worry about it. We'll give you the talking points. You just take care of your constituents and raise money and be a good party soldier. That People just want to walk away. Um, right. Like, why would you want to be there if you were into policy? And then the flip side happens is that so you leave, right? And you can just watch people. You know, Will Hurd leaving is just like the epitome of that, right? Like a guy who actually cared. Um, you know, about his set of policies. He's gone. He's like, why would I do this? And then who's going to replace those people are people who don't mind being party soldiers coming to Washington a couple of days a week, eating lunch and, and raising money down in the safe houses. And that's, that's dangerous. I think um, when, when, when Congress is full of people who aren't sort of driven by policy change so much. I think as- it's a really good point. And I, I guess, uh, uh, you know, you're right. Legislative leaders generally not associated with certain policies. I mean, I don't, I think of someone like Bob Dole, who was not really was really just a, a he was a creature of the Senate, a creature of, you know, the establishment, if you will. But then again, I look at Nancy Pelosi as somebody who, even though you're right, good legislative leader, but you knew what she stood for. You knew that there were certain policies that she believed in. Right. Yes. She, there were certain red lines for her. And I don't get that impression that exists now. And, I, you know, someone made the point a few minutes ago that I really want to get back to. They said we've converted a two party system into a parliamentary one. And that kind of is kind of where we are now. In American politics, we have this, you know, parliamentary system, and this is a little bit of a, a, a tangent here, but the parliamentary system is one like we have in the UK and then France and elsewhere, where a party wins and they push their agenda through. But we have we don't have we we have that here too. We don't have the system established to be a parliamentary system. Right. There's so many choke points that prevent actually from accomplishing what you want, even if you have the majority. Yeah, I mean, this was this was you know Ryan's famous complaint, right? When you know when he. I don't know if it was before he got the speakership or right after. He's like, we've tried to graft sort of parliamentary style parties into a separation of power system, um, right. giving us in some ways the worst of both worlds. And and I don't, I, you know, I don't think it's an inherently damning that, you know, you have strong parties that hold together in, in Congress. Again, that's how the parliaments in Europe work. It's how in American history for the longest time, part of us are all sort of like, misguided because our reference point is the 60s when partisanship was at its low and the Republicans and Northern Democrats came together to crush segregation, right? And we have these ideas of sort of bipartisanship in the 60s and individualism among members. But that's really the weird period, right? Like partisanship is a feature of American history and American legislative life. Uh, and if you look at the 19th century parties, um, they're unbelievably partisan. Um, and, and so I don't think it's like damning to have to run a legislature this way. I'm just not sure sort of the current incentive structure um, really channels anything towards productivity. Uh, and the Freedom Caucus is the best example of it. But I, I think sort of the conservative media in general um, has been has been a negative influence on the Republicans. And I think to a large degree, liberal media has been a, a negative influence on, on, on the liberals too. Uh, in that I see a lot of incentives for people um, uh, to, to gain politically by not governing, right? And that's yeah. not the incentive structure we want. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, and, I, you know, to your point also, I mean, it just seemed to me that the biggest shift we've had in the last like 30 years in American politics is the parties are much more homogenous and they used to be heterogeneous. We used to have like a Southern, you For know, sure. conservative wing Democratic Party and then we had a liberal. Uh, that, I'm sorry, a Southern wing that was kind of that was sort of somewhat ideologically uh, 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 on par with the Northern Republicans. Right. right? And, and we don't have that anymore. Yeah. Um, no, uh, I should say, I'm, 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 I'm getting that wrong. I'm sorry. I'm rephrasing that incorrectly. The Northern Republicans and the Liberal Democrats were on par. The Southern Democrats and the 
maybe your Western conservatives were on. Yeah, Midwest Republicans. Yeah. And I mean, and, and, and what did that do to have these cross-party alliances? I mean, generally one thing it did is it, is it turned the temperature down on the name calling, right? Like right. If you didn't know where 218 was coming from next week or the week after the week after. It was a lot harder to say you're the devil. If you know, like, well, I work with that guy on infrastructure bills. I don't want to do that. Right. Or I work with the guy on the civil rights stuff, or I work with that guy on water rights. Right. Um, Now, you know, where 218 is coming from, right? It's right. coming from the party. And so the minority has no interest in either helping out or being nice to you. Uh, and the majority has no interest in cutting the minority in, right? And so uh, all of that does create a different sort of house representatives and a different house dynamic. Um, one problem though, is that like, you know, there's just more than two parties in America. They've always had to be stuffed into these right. two boxes, but exactly. it doesn't matter if they're sort of catch-all like they were in the 60s where you have liberals and conservatives in both parties, or if they're ideological, even now, right? You can see sort of like the five grand parties of Europe in there, right? You got Bernie and AOC's party, Biden's center-left party, Romney's center-right party, Lee's social conservative party. He's got the Christian Democrats, right? And then you have like Trump's ethno-nationalist party, right? They're all there, right? Um, they're just pushed into the two-party system. And I think the key problem with that functionally, is that the one coalition you can build in Europe that's not super hard to do is putting the Biden-Romney coalition together. And that's right. really hard to do in the United States because the wall between the parties blocks it off, right? Right. Yeah. You know, it's funny because the Democratic Party, I, I made this point, like in 2009, there were 60 Democrats in the Senate. Uh, and today there are 51. And I would argue that the Democratic Party is more powerful and unified with 51 and able to pass legislation than they were with 60 because when they had 60 they had all these moderate southern democrats midwestern democrats who who, who weren't on on in the same uh, page as the liberal democrats and now there's this i mean people i mean it's always amazing me like the liberals i think i've in a lot of ways forgotten or don't realize how much they've won because yeah. they control this the democratic party to an extent that has never been true in American politics. I, I think that, you know, the key moment for me was that the, after the 2010 election, when, by the way, I thought Pelosi was toast. I I thought she was done after 2010. I um, When Heath Shuler got 43 votes against her in the caucus. For right, season. right, right. Um, but, you know, she made a conscious decision, or not she, but the party made a conscious decision, I think, after 2010, that they weren't going to try and get the Southern Democrats back, the Heath Shuler types, the pro-gun, pro-life Southern Democrats. They weren't going to try and win those back. They were going to try and build a progressive majority. Um, and it took them longer than I think they thought it would. But by 2018 election, yeah. they did it. They, they did won it. the House back without any pro-gun members, with you know uh, one or two pro-life members. Um, but they they did it. They found that progressive majority, which is a very narrow majority, right? It's not that broad-based 245 or whatever. Um, but as you say, like it's a much more liberal Democratic Party, even if it's a narrow majority in the Senate. Like the Dakota Democrats are just gone, right? Um, and and sort of you can't even imagine them coming back. Do you um, realize, like in 2009, three of the I think this is right. 2009, three of the maybe it was 2010 or 11, something in that period, three of the Dakota senators were Democrats. Yeah. And, and that was not uncommon either. Right. Um, they weren't sort of like uh, you would never call them sort of like progressives, but they also were champions of a lot of Democratic things. Right. Support for for farm stuff and and, and infrastructure building out in, in the West. And 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 they and, and most importantly, they supported the party right on core party issues. Absolutely. Right? Um, and and that's a different world. But again, like the Democrats, you know, parties don't see like individuals you can't say the party like did something purposefully but the way parties make choices is they built a progressive majority and that's a that's a big win for them right if you can have a majority of congress it's progressives like i don't think until 2019 you ever had like a stable 
gun control majority in the House. Right. Like when now, when now. when the assault weapons bill, you know, ban passed in the 90s, that was partly built on Republican sort of concerns about crime in cities. But like for years, the Democrats had majorities like 2007 to 2011. We didn't have anything close to a pro-gun control majority. Right. Not even close. Um, and now you do. And that, that that goes to your point, which I think is absolutely correct, that the Democratic Party has has successfully maintained a majority while moving leftward significantly. Uh, right. In the last 12 years, we have these people who talk about sort of asymmetric polarization and they talk about how the Republicans have gotten much more conservative and the Democrats really haven't changed. I, I think it's asymmetric, but I think it's nonsense to say the Democratic Party hasn't changed. It's I mean, absolutely not, nonsense. It's nonsense. It's absolutely um, nonsense. I, I, you look at Obama's platform in 2009, like, particularly on social issues, and it's just like light years away from where they are now. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when Clinton was, was president and the Democratic coalition that he had then. Yeah. This. I mean, there you can't even imagine this the kind of issues Democrats have taken the lead on on guns, on social issues, on abortion, on uh, uh, gay rights, on right, all yeah. these different issues would yeah. have been unimaginable in the night of Clinton. Yeah, you know, and, and, I mean, and and that's sort of that's sort of like sort of the the curse of politics is like no matter how much you win, right? There's still always going to be things that make you feel like you're you know you're falling behind or slipping. But that you know it's it's I always think about. You know, the, 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 if, if, if you're a liberal who believes in these things, the victories you've won in the last 20 years, um, you know, you can be worried about the courts rolling them back or, or Republicans reversing some of them. But like there are core victories that have been won that are absolutely significant. Yeah. And I think and I'll just say we got to finish up in a second. If any of our questions, go ahead. But I will say this, that I don't think people have talked enough about how extraordinary it is that the Democrats in the House have held together this entire time. It, it, again, like. Matt and I, I don't, you know, we're old enough to remember when Democrats in disarray was an accurate description of Democratic Party, a very (laughs) accurate description. And to see them on vote after vote stick with, by the way, just let's be clear about this, a a black liberal Democrat from New York, right? I mean, unimaginable, unimaginable. I mean, the the one thing they have going for them is that it's easy in the minority to stay together. Um, and the other thing they had going for them was Pelosi. I, I, I think the Democrats are only going to realize how great she was, even more so going forward. Like, God bless Hakeem Jeffries. You know, I hope he does a good job for the party and for the country and for, for you know, things. But I, I would be hard pressed to say I expect Hakeem Jeffries to do what Pelosi could do because she was just a wizard. And th- the funny thing is the Republicans, you know, harass Pelosi in their TV ads and their election stuff. But they're all on offer, too. Everybody is. Of course. Like, it's just like doing what she did over her period as a legislative leader is just we're not going to see it again. No, and I, and I, you know, I agree. And I also will just, you know, because I, I would like to put a plug in here for Chuck Schumer. I don't think it's nearly enough credit for Democrats that he deserves. He's pretty damn good, too. And they are blessed with having really good leadership. Uh, and they've had good leadership in the next two years. And I think it's one of the reasons why Biden was so successful. Yes, it's, they were successful because they had a, a relatively homogenous coalition, um, but they had really good leaders, you know, and Schumer was good as an opposition leader when, when Trump was president. And he was really good um, at pushing a Biden agenda through and keeping that very difficult coalition. I mean, not difficult, but I should say two difficult members, keeping them together with the other 48. Um, and again, as I said, I mean, you know, Democrats traditionally, well, you have to say this, one thing that also helped that I think is important is Republicans have become so uh, and I'm going to use a, a Yiddish expression here, Meshugana, that it has unified the Democratic Party. And I, I go back to the best example I, to me of this, which is 2009 in the healthcare debate. You know, I don't think people realize how amazing it is that 60 Democrats voted and came together on Obamacare. 
but they did largely because they kind of had to because Republicans were opposed to everything they wanted to accomplish. And in a sense, Republican opposition and Republican obstinacy has held this the Democrats together in a way that I don't know would have been possible without it. And it's one of the things that I think has created this kind of parliamentary system in a way. Like, you know, everything is part- partisanized to the, to the point that, like, you kind of have to be with your team because if you're not, then not just your team fails, but everybody on that team fails. There's no, there's no freelancing. There's, there's no, there's no upside to freelancing. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that you forget is that, you know, obviously Trump has had a lot to do with this, but it's been a long time and it's going to be a long time since the Democrats have had to deal with a Republican president who tried to make inroads with them. Like Trump just like never tried, never tried, he never tried. And so you have four years of Biden now, maybe four more, probably four more in some ways. You had four years of Trump not trying it, eight years Obama, but like, even Bush, who obviously liberals hated at times, was looking for ways to work with Democrats a lot, right? Particularly yes. on like immigration, right? And 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 a Republican president doing that can divide you, right? Like that's how politics works, right? Like you 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 peel people off from the other party, and like Trump had no instinct to do that ever. And so it's been a long time since we've had sort of a Republican administration that was even engaging with Democrats in any sort of real way. Yeah, well, let's finish up. And I'll just ask one last question, then we and I'll let you go because you, you've been awesome. This has been a great conversation. Um, but you brought this up and I wanted to get to it at one point, at some point, the biggest winner out of this whole thing seems to me to be Joe Biden. Um, and I say this because I mean, this visual yesterday or two days ago of the house unable to do the speaker and Joe Biden in Kentucky with Mitch McConnell praising his bipartisan infrastructure bill. I mean, Jesus talk about a visual for the ages. I mean, Biden ran on, I'm going to be the guy that can bring Washington together. And he can actually make the case that he did because he passed a host of bipartisan legislation. Uh, I mean, partisan stuff too, the, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act and the, um, uh, the stimulus at the beginning of his term, yeah. but also things that were bipartisan. And I just think, you know, he wants to be the adult in the room. That's, that's the image he tried to portray. And he is just everything that's happened the last week has helped to solidify that image of Biden. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I think, you know, Biden's basic play, anytime you defeat a sitting president the way Biden did, your basic play is going to orient your politics in opposition to them. And the basic way for Biden to do that was to be like, we're going to have a normal presidency and America's going to be normal again. Right? And that's like the, not easiest, be a jerk. the easiest politics in the world, right? Like, I'm not going to do jerky things that would be normal. Exactly. And he got tripped up for a while, right? Because COVID didn't go away. So that wasn't normal, right? The Afghanistan withdrawal is probably the biggest problem he has to deal with sort of in general going yes. forward. And then inflation came in, right? So things weren't really normal. And that's not great when you were saying it's going to be normal. But, you know, the 117th Congress was ultra productive. Right. Like I, people say, well, Congress is dysfunctional. You cannot say that about the 117th Congress. They did a ton. It may not have been what you wanted them to do. It may not have been the issues you wanted them to take up, or it may not have been as liberal or conservative as you personally might have wanted, but they did a ton. And Biden's at the center of that. And standing there with Mitch McConnell praising an infrastructure bill is about the most normal thing you can do as president of the United States in, in the realm of sort of like basic domestic policy. And to watch sort of, you know, the, the, the circus going on in the house and, you know, and I, I'm a legislative branch guy. And so like, I, I, it, it pains me when there's a circus in Congress and the president looks so good in, you know, just from an institutional point of view, but it's just true right now. And that's going to be good for Biden. Look, every day that the house isn't organized, like that's probably good for Biden too. Cause it's one less day where someone's trying to beat him over the head uh, with, with, with oversight that's either legitimate, which is, you know, maybe figuring out what the heck went on with the Afghanistan withdrawal or not legitimate, which is the other laundry list of things. Yeah, that Biden. Biden has on his plate, right. 
And so that's all coming. But the, the, the more the House is a clown show under the Republicans, the more it is good for the Democrats and the person's best for is Biden. Yeah, I think that's the bottom line here. I mean, I, I think, you know, look, people are not going to remember two years from now what happened uh, the last week in Congress. But this kind of dysfunction, I think it just it's like a stink of an odor that sticks to the Republicans. And you saw this, look, you saw this in the midterms. They were hurt by it. The Republicans, a lot of Republicans voted for Democratic candidates because they're, they're tired of the extremism of Republicans. This just, you know, I think reinforces that. So in the sense that the, I think the big political takeaway from this week is that we're going to get more dysfunction, but it's going to be a bigger, a more of a problem for Republicans. And by the way, even talked about this, this Fakakta, uh, sorry, all the Yiddish today, this ridiculous nomination fight that's going to be coming up between Republicans. I mean, this is going to be one of the uglier nomination fights we've ever seen. I, I predict this because Trump is not going to go down uh, um, easily. You're not going to lose, uh, not going to lose with dignity. And it so, does, it, yeah, yeah, it does feel like it's slipping away from him, though. Like Trump sort of tried to back McCarthy to literally no end. It was either on Wednesday or yesterday. And like it does it does feel like Trump's sort of ability to influence moment to moment things in Congress has disappeared to a large degree. But I agree with you that Trump is not going to. I mean, who knows what's going to happen with Trump in, in, in the primaries, either within them or outside of them. But I agree with you that he is not going to sort of like gracefully walk away kind of the same way he didn't gracefully walk away from the 2020 election right and uh you know i just have a weird paradoxical argument about trump that the weaker he looks now the better it is from the long term and the reason i say that is because the weaker he looks now the more republicans think i can beat him Hmm. and they want to get into they're going to run against him the more crowded the field is in 2024 the better it is for trump and my thing in this is if it's a crowded field with lots of candidates, because of the nature of how Republicans choose their president, which is basically winner-take-all primaries and caucuses, he has a base of support that nobody yeah. can match. Yeah. And that's why I kind of, I know this is a weird argument to make, but I do think if he can keep 30, 40% of the party behind him, he can be the next, and, it, and yeah. it, it will be. I think it's possible. I mean, the, the thing working against him is that every marginal Republican who, even if they like Trump, is, you know, you know is convinced that he can't win. Right. And and, you know, people felt that way in 16, of course. Right. You know, and it's why it led to people like Mike Lee, you know, railing against him at the convention. Right. It wasn't necessarily because they, you know, disliked his policies. It was more because they didn't think he could win. But now he's been proven as a loser. Right. And I and so I, I do think he's going to have a tougher fight in the primaries because that's how he won in 16, right? Like everything you're describing is really the model of how he won, right? Yeah. It's a divided field. And he does have a diehard, at least quarter, if not a third of Republican voters. Um, and that's super powerful in the structure of the Republican nominating system. Um, I'm not sure it'll be enough this time. Um, and uh, I think a lot of people are of the mindset that they've decided that they like Trump's policies maybe, but they don't like Trump um, or th- not, not even that that they don't think he's a winner anymore. Right. And it's like, what's the difference? Um, but we don't know. I mean, you know, people are like, Oh, DeSantis is going to replace Trump. Um, the other problem with like someone like DeSantis or any of these other candidates is like, sometimes you just show up in Iowa and nobody votes for you. Like it happens I, all the time in the primaries. Listen, I wrote a piece about this over the summer that I'm not sold in DeSantis. I don't think he's has the, has the, the juice to win the nomination. And I have only been reinforcing that view since then. I do not think he is going to be the nominee. Um, I just think that he is, he doesn't play very well outside of, uh, Hey, look, I'll be this way. I think he's pissed off Trump, which is not good for him in the long term. Trump wanted to destroy him. I think that he could maybe win the nomination, but he cannot win general election because he does not have cross party appeal. Um, I, I think also, and this is, I hate to say this, he has a whiny voice, he's an abrasive voice. Uh, I just think he doesn't have, he, he reminds me of Ted Cruz in a lot of ways. 
and not he's not as phony as Ted Cruz, but he doesn't have he doesn't, he's unlikable in the same way that Ted Cruz is. Um, we should get this up here. I wanted to say I noticed Carl point out fourteen flips, including Ghost Art. So that's so how many? So seven right now. I'm seeing seven. That's pretty good for McCarthy, actually. Well, the twelve vote. There's seven holdouts. I and, and I'm seeing a vision of Matt Gates talking to Debbie Wasserman Schultz. I mean, perhaps about local Florida issues, but um, that also is sort of the the kind of image you see that you're like, wow, maybe a deal is at hand. But if there's still seven holdouts, they still have to be mollified somehow. Um, now, it, so it's 14 flips, so they're, they're down to seven against him. That is the kind of coalition. Now you can start to crack them as a prisoner's dilemma. Um, because now if there's seven holdouts, you can start trying to get them individually by promising individual things and promising to punish the people that don't go along. Um, right. Or at least sort of um, hurt them, if not outright punish them. Um, and so breaking seven is a lot easier than than breaking 20. And so if this is going to hold going forward, uh, then McCarthy's done a good job here to to try and buy it up. And, you know, if seven people just don't want to go with him, then he's just stuck. Uh, but it's a lot easier to start now using the goodies to try and break um, yeah. a, a coalition of seven where you only have to get two, three of them, right? I mean, seven is out of 222 is like what? Uh, uh, what percentage of that? I mean, it's like 3%. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty hard to justify at this point. Yeah. Um, so we'll see. All right. Well, listen, I don't want to keep you all day. As you can see, uh, Matt and I could really spend all day. I mean, we probably I don't know Matt that well. We've talked to you guys on the phone, but I can tell from this conversation that he and I are kindred souls yes. because he and I could just talk politics probably the entire afternoon if, if, if given the opportunity to do so. Plus, he plays poker, which I like to play yes. also. So we have a lot in common. So anyway, this was a great, awesome. And by the way, let me congratulate you yes. uh, that you just got uh, a free trip to the Bahamas. Is that yeah, right? I want, a, I want a poker writing contest. So I'm going to play the uh, Poker Stars Championship in the Bahamas at the end of the month. Um, which is crazy because, like, I do not play the stakes where I would be entering $25,000 entry fee tournaments on my own. So it's super exciting. Um, it's it's uh, it's going to be great. I, my wife and I have been on a vacation, just the two of us, in, like, a decade, you know, with our kids. And so um, I'm super excited about that. And, like, you know, giving it a whirl with the with the pros and a 25K it sounds awesome, too. Um, well, I, listen, hey, maybe, you know, you never know. You might get know. a like, – might crack a few aces there. You might, yeah. you might end up actually pulling it off. I'll be <laughs> for you. I will send along uh, that essay that won in the next uh, next newsletter and i want to thank you matt for joining yeah. us today this was such a great conversation uh thank you everyone for comments this was wonderful i really appreciate it let's do it again soon sure. maybe maybe a month from now if we're still having this if we're still having a speaker yet we can uh we can we can talk about it some more yeah, anytime we'll see, we'll see where things go but thanks again thanks everyone sure. for joining us and i'll see you guys next week or two weeks from now on next uh, zoom chat thanks a lot guys bye-bye